Y'all please take a seat. Amen. I love that. Well, y'all, hey, again, welcome to the Springs. We are so glad you're here. If you're joining us, here's where, here's where you're joining us. We are right now coming to the final weeks, to the conclusion of our series through 1 Thessalonians. We're calling it Goals. The reason we're calling it that is because it's this letter written to a faithful church in the town of modern-day Greece. Back then it was called Thessalonica, right? We're just talking about the faithfulness there and how we as a body, how do we with this theme excel still more? So that's where we are. Before we jump into that, I want to ask you guys a question that, strangely enough, I've spent some time thinking about. Who here knows what a prepper is? Huh? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's more hands, honestly, than I expected. So a prepper, so depend on where you are, because terms matter. When I say prepper, I looked up a definition, right? Here's what I mean by that. Let's show. A prepper, it's a person who believes a catastrophic disaster or emergency is likely to occur in the future and makes active preparations for it, typically by stockpiling food, ammunition, and other supplies. So when I say prepper, Anybody here know somebody, or even if you're so bold, is like a true prepper? Nobody? Okay, we got a couple bold people. Here, this is the first time I learned about what I will now call the prepper movement, because y'all, it's a movement. There's TV shows, people are serious about this, it's on the internet. You can get lost for 30 minutes easy in YouTube on this, right? Easy. First time I learned about this was maybe four years ago. Four years ago. I went to a, a lunch with, with a lay leader. I was on staff at a church in Dallas. And one of the things you have the privilege of doing, you go hang out with a ton of people. He was a lay leader over a bunch of folks. I went to this lunch. We were eating. I can remember we were hanging out. It was a great little Mexican restaurant in north south of Dallas. He comes and he walks in the restaurant. I'd gotten there before him. And he's carrying one of those, you know those somehow, sometimes folks have those like uh, carrying cases for their Bible. They'll like put their Bible in it. They'll have a zipper to it. He's carrying something like that. And I'm thinking, wow, this guy brought his Bible. Look at him. Way to go. And he walks up and he picks it up and he goes to set down his Bible on the table and you just hear this thud. And you see this table, right? I can remember watching the salsa shake, shake as it hits. And immediately you realize that's not what a book sounds like when a book hits a table. It was something heavy and it was something metal. I look at him, his name was John. I look at John, I remember saying, John, is that a gun in that bag? And he looked at me and said, oh, yes, it is with this big old smile on his face. Now, hey, if you got a CHL or you carry props to you, whatever, that's not what this is about, right? But I can remember showing up and he had, he didn't show it to me then, but this massive, I don't really know that much about guns, Magnum revolver sitting in there. Why? He wanted to be ready at any moment because he believed future catastrophic events were going to happen. He was the first prepper I ever really met and he was serious about it. John, he, he actually has a, I'll plug this. He has his own company called Storm Dorms where he builds shelters, metal shelters that he will bolt to the floor in a basement outside, dig in a hill, he'll set up for you for end times events. That could be everything too, from hurricane, tornado, I don't really know about flash flood. I don't know if they're waterproof, right? But a lot of serious stuff, and he was serious about it. Like he had this view of the world is just getting worse. I need to be ready for it all today. I can remember asking him, so John, what's in your shelter? Like, what do you got in there? And he went through, almost word for word, this definition. Food, water, guns, and a tremendous amount of ammo. 
right? That's what he walked me through as we're sitting there. I'm getting to know him. So you, you believe in Jesus Christ? Well, I dip it in salsa and we're talking about prepping for the end of the world. And he's walking me through this and he begins to say, actually, me and the wife, in a couple of weeks, we're going to take a trip. Oh, where are we all going to go? Oh, we're going to go to one of our storage sites, our shelter sites, I should say. He had multiple. He had some backup options, depending on where he was in location, right? And he's like, yeah, it's right now we're stocked for three months. We really feel more comfortable if that was closer to six months. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh my gosh. And then he shifts. Why? Because he loves me and he cares for me in a weird way at the time, right? Shifts. And he's like, what about you and your wife, Taylor? Have you guys thought through this? Do you guys have shelter options? Like you have a place we could put this? And I'm sitting here, I'm like, dude, no. And my prepping is I now know you and have your phone number. <laughs> so if the world ends, I'm calling you, bud. And then he's like, well, actually, really got to think about, likely at that point, cell service will be down, right? <laughs> Roads and damage, there's probably looting. It'd probably be unsafe, really, with traffic in between where you and my, that's 40 minutes, John. I don't know if I'd risk it. I'm like, I'll, I'll risk it. I will risk it. But here was this guy, this first time I'd met this true prepper. And what his whole view was is, hey, who knows what the future will bring? But because of the future, I want to be ready today. And it changed the way he lived. It changed the way he lived. The reason I start with that is here's what we're going to see in the text today. There's an event. There is a second coming of Jesus Christ that you and I, we are called to be preppers for. In the same way, not at all. Not at all. But in a way to where the future is meant to have an impact on Today, In the same way my friend John looked at the future events and wanted to be ready today, you and I are called to, is what I will call it today, live ready. Live ready. Specifically what I'm talking about is, as Christians, here's what we believe. We believe Jesus Christ came. We'll celebrate that at Christmas. He was born in a manger. The incarnation of God, fully God, fully human. He walked the earth for what people would probably say 33 years in perfection. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for every wrong thing I have ever done and will ever do. And the same for you. He rose from the grave three days later proving this is all true. Believe. That was his first coming. He will have a second coming. The term we'll see today, it's called day of the Lord. And what we'll see through the text is the reality. When he comes back, and his coming itself is meant to change the way that we, sorry, I'm laughing at all the kids in there. Pray for us, man. We're having some space issues and a ton of kids and trying to get creative. But all I have to say is bless y'all for sticking through it. We're going to start giving out like earplugs for the right ear so nobody can even hear out of that side. And that crowd, we should like give y'all popcorn or something for just enduring. But uh but all I say, back to the end of the world, right? So the end of the world, it, the way the future is, it impacts today. And Christians, we believe this. Not, not to where you prep in the same way my buddy John did, but to where it changes. And here's the reason I think this matters so much, especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a bunch of reasons, but one that really stands out to me. I have a lot of conversations with people who view end times. Eschatology would be a word there who view that almost in terms of like an intellectual education. Here, I can tell you how it ends, why it ends, the signs to look for, how it'll be. And there's this almost academic and educated approach to it, where, where there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but really, church, here's why I think it matters for us. What this text is going to show, it doesn't lead to just education. It leads to reformation. It changes how we live. It changes the character, the conduct, 
It's moral edification. It's building up. So the people who really know the most about the second coming of Christ, sure, maybe they can outline it and detail it and tell you every reason. And here's why the book of Daniel, it means this, it means that, which is great. If you can do that, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But the people who really know the most about the second coming of Christ are the ones who live ready. Who live ready because a coming king has won, he's ransomed them, and he's set them free. And he's coming again. And because of that, it changes them. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, here's why I think this one, at least engage with it. Here's why I think it matters. This text, here's what it will do in a direct way with you. It will draw what I'm going to call a dichotomy, a distinction between those who believe in Christ and those who don't. And if you're here and you're wrestling with faith, sometimes when people do that, they can have an approach that I had. Hey, I'll figure out God in my 30s. Figure out God in my 40s. And once I got kids and I want to settle down, then I'll try and actually figure out the whole faith thing. You'll see through this lens, this isn't something you plan for. This isn't something you anticipate. This is something that one day God pleads with you up until that time, come home. Believe. I love you. I paid the penalty for everything wrong. But there will come a day, and only God knows when that day is, when that timeline will be over. And he will roll up time and move on. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, here's what I'm asking you to do. Please consider it. Really consider it. The way we're going to do that is we're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, first 11 verses. We're going to talk about how do we live ready as Christians. How do we live ready? We're going to look at three things. The first thing this text is going to call us to is be aware, be sober, be encouraged. Be aware, be sober, be encouraged. If you're with us last week, here's what we worked through, the end of chapter four, where it talks about the coming of the Lord. What we're going to really talk about today is the terminology, the day of the Lord, right? (laughs) The day of the Lord. Now, day of the Lord, we'll break out what I think I mean by that, but picture subsequent events following what happened last week. And the key things I want you to remember, too. One, the distinction between believer and non-believer. And the second one I think that matters is why is this all in here? Remember, church, what's the need? The need is for you and me to look more like Jesus Christ. Christ will come again, and how does that change us now? Motivates, compels us to look more like him today. If you will, if you got a Bible, turn with me, chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, times and seasons, that's frequent language in your Bible. It's two different Greek words for time, or it's referencing end-time events. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, he's talking to Christians, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Is this section, is this theme compels you and me in response to the second coming to live ready? The first thing that you see in this text that we can't escape is the reality that it calls Christians to first be, and using this text word, 
aware. Be aware. What's the first thing it's calling us to be aware of? That phrase there, the day of the Lord. For those of y'all that don't know this, and I bet most of you don't, because I didn't before this week, the day of the Lord appears 19 times in your Old Testament, four times in your New. Right? If you want to understand exactly kind of my view on how end times will take place, feel free to go back. You can listen to last week. But as a quick reference, I'm putting before you, I think this follows everything from the moment Jesus Christ comes, we meet him in the air as his church. He takes his church back all the way up through the time, the end of his millennial reign. If you don't know what all that means, don't worry about it. But that would be my version of, hey, what I'm putting before, that's what the day of the Lord is. And this time, really, here's what it means. It's a time of where God comes and he brings provision and care to his people where he cares for those who's come, who believed in him, who've trusted in him. And then the other part too. It is a time where he brings judgment on those who've rejected him. There's a principle in Christianity that's always true. God will give you what you want. And if you do not want him, he will give you that. He will not force himself upon you. He will not make you love him. But he does woo, he does call, and he does choose and so that's where this day, Lord, really has two themes, this provision for God's people and judgment on those who've rejected God. So what will then non-believers, because again, the language here, there was believer and non-believer, you are not those. There's three words that I think those who don't know Jesus Christ, those who are not aware, I think there's three characteristics that they would describe the day of the Lord as. And we'll look through this text and I'll show them to you. The first one is unexpected. The next one will be destructive, and the third will be absolute. Absolute. The first one, unexpected. You see this language all throughout here. Right? You see it will come like a thief in the night. No one plans for or knows when the thief will come. The thief just comes. Come like a thief in the night. While some are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction, so unanticipated, sudden destruction will come upon them. The theme that there's peace and security, you, you could turn to Matthew 24 if you want to check this out. We won't today. But throughout the end of the earth, there will be people who rise up as false teachers and who will say, do not follow God. Go that way, go that way, go that way. They will be tremendously convincing, tremendously convincing, so much so that even believers, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, they would be deceived in it. So this will be a time where it will be unexpected. People say, man, it's peaceful, there's hope, it's good. Almost imagine like life today where we knew something had seriously changed, we knew something had seriously happened, but there's this like, yeah, it'll be all right. We'll keep going, it's no big deal. There's peace, and then sudden. And it builds to again, the church, because of an awareness, we cannot be surprised like a thief in the night. The first thing I'll describe is unexpected. The next thing you see here, destructive. That word, their sudden destruction. It was fun studying that word, because here's what that word does not mean, like, like annihilation, elimination. It means Separation. Sudden destruction here talks about the eternal removal of you from God's presence. If you want to see that, you can actually, if you've got a Bible, turn one page. We're going to read 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, just real quick. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. So remember that, that's our word. 
comma, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The destructive nature of the second coming of Christ, the judgment will come ultimately in God saying, you did not want me? Okay, you will not have me. He will honor their wishes. And the third part, the third one is absolute. The third way the day of the Lord will be described by those who don't believe will be absolute. The text goes on to say, even that phrase, and they will not escape it. It's the promise that God pleads with humanity, come, come, come. I've died for you. I love you. Almquist, I've paid the penalty for every sin you've done and you will do. Trust in me. And yet for those who don't, who deny that, they won't escape the judgment. There will be no second try. There will be no purgatory. There will be no redo. There will be no work your way back to. There will be sudden destruction. The day of the Lord is a time of provision, right, for God's people who come and bring them to themselves. But it will be a time of judgment for those who deny him. And it, church, we must be fully aware, it will come. He is coming. And for those who believe, it's wondrous news. And for those who deny, they will meet judgment. Y'all remember Y2K? Y2K scare? Yeah, me too, man. Right? Y2K scare, for those of y'all, recap, like, to, uh, the millennium was going to change. It's going to party like it's 1999. Hold up, wait up, it is. 2000 comes, right? It's the new year. I went to a Y2K party. I remember hanging out. We went with family friends up to this house. Everyone was nervous about once it turned midnight, what was going to happen. The whole reason for it, for some reason I had in my head like every computer algorithm, like the dating system for each of them started with a one and it was about to switch to a two and no computer knew how I was going to do it. So we were basically going to kick back to the dark ages Everybody was terrified of it. My dad, he bought extra software for his computer. So I can remember going to these friends' house and we're watching it, we're watching the ball drop and we didn't know, well, hey, we're Eastern time. So does it happen in New York City time or will it be West Coast time? Where's the first server? I didn't know any of that. But I just knew the ball's dropping and it gets there. All of a sudden, it's the new year. And I can remember us all looking around and thinking like, did the lights go out? Like, does the internet work? Like, does any of that, like dial up, right? Do we do any of that? Nothing happened. Not a single thing happened to what it seems to me to be this huge business scheme to get you to buy a bunch of extra stuff and people like me and my dad got duped, right? But here's what I'm telling you. They had made me aware. I knew about it. Kids at school talked about it. I can remember teachers talking about it, parents talking about it, friends talking about it. I was aware, but nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened changed. This moment will not be like that. Even folks who, who don't believe in Jesus Christ, there's at least some version of apocalypse now that people tend to gravitate towards. But what it won't be is like Y2K, an awareness of something that had no real effect. But you know how a world will view it? They will view it much like Y2K. Hey, that's weird. You're the people who think that. Sure, great, but that's not for me. Church, awareness comes in us realizing Jesus Christ is coming again.
the day of the Lord will happen. And what Paul wants for you and what he wants for me is the same thing he put in the text, that we would be fully aware. And then he goes on to talk about what should that do for us today. Read with me. Jump back into the text. We're going to look at verses 4 through 8. 4 through 8. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are, no, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The second theme is Paul's calling you and me to live ready, to be prepared for. The way it's not just education, but it changes us. As he's talking about, be sober. Be sober. Now for you, and depending on your background, you hear sober and immediately just think alcoholism, drugs, addiction, which yes, of course that's true in this. But sobriety really means an awareness of faithfulness an attentiveness to the things of God. To where this whole section, you could summarize it right there at the start of verse eight. This is the summary, and then we're gonna break it down from here. The summary right there in the verse eight. But since we belong to the day, comma, let us be sober. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. As, as a side note, that's a summary of your entire New Testament. Since we belong to the day, because we are children of the king, let us be sober. Let us act as royalty. Christians, we are compelled to change, not because God demands it, but because he enables it. Where he comes and he gives us a new nature, and then what do we do with a new nature, a new character? It changes conduct. And so Paul, with that summary theme, he's going to set it up and he's going to prove his point through contrast. He's going to contrast it in three ways. The first way he'll start is he's going to go dark and light. The next thing he'll do is he'll go asleep and awake. And then after that, he will go drunk and sober. Why? He's trying to elevate. Hey, hey, you, you are children of the day. You have a new nature. Let us be sober. Let us live as God would have because God has made us new. The first one, darkness and light, our first contrast. Really what this is talking about here is, again, it's your nature. If, if you're here, regardless of what you did last night, the thing in your life that you're too scared to tell anybody, that if I even came to talk to you about, you would just bow up and look at me and say, no one ever needs to know. The part of you that you think, if people knew this about me, they wouldn't let me back in here. We all have that. But that part of you, Christ died for. He paid the penalty for it. It's marked as the night. Here's what's true for those who believe. It's Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, my life is no longer marked by darkness. 
despite the pull that still drags me back to it, the grace of God means I'm a child of the light. I walk in the light. He changed my nature. He changed my character. That's the first contrast. The second one, he's going to shift out of our nature. He's going to talk about our conduct. The next one he's going to say here, he's going to say asleep versus awake. Asleep versus awake. The language he's using here, it's not depicting dead or alive. He's talking about asleep. Those who are spiritually indifferent, those who are spiritually apathetic, when it comes to the things of God or faith, they simply say what I've said many times. I just don't care. I just don't really care. That's asleep. Spiritually awake. Jesus Christ has changed me, and because of that, I want to look more like him. He loves me, and that's the greatest love I've ever known. And because of that, I want to excel more and more. Those who are spiritually awake are never the people that think, I have arrived, or I'm doing pretty well, or I'm good enough. That self-righteousness doesn't exist there. Why? Because awake says, how can I be more and more? Why? Because Jesus Christ gave me his most. That's asleep and awake. And then the final one, drunk and sober. He builds from almost going from like spiritual apathy to, to more spiritual, active rebellion. Like, like apathy is I just don't care. Drunkenness is I'll do it. And then sobriety here, it's really talking about this sense of alertness. It's almost the idea of the soldier in the middle of wartime which he's gonna build on that theme in the next verse. The soldier in the middle of the wartime, they stand alert at ready, waiting for the moment. Why? Because they serve a purpose in it. Church, do you ever realize that God, if he wanted to, as soon as you believed, he could just take you to glory? You ever wondered why he doesn't? Him not doing that leaves you here to face pain, suffering. Yes, there's laughter, there's joy, difficulty, disheartenment. Why does he not just take you? Because he sent you to be sober, to be a missionary, a soldier who does not just consider yourself but considers others as more significant than you, looking not to your interest but to the interest of the others. He sent you to where you can die, and at your funeral, there's a eulogy that is preached that glorifies God through the faithfulness where you said, I went all in. That church is spiritual sobriety. I got to hang out with some friends recently. I hung out with them a few months ago, right? And they'd been walking through marriage. They'd been married seven years, I think. Seven years. Throughout most of that time, they'd started really excited, but the marriage became what they would just call roommates. Roommates. Now, they'd come, they'd gotten connected, and they were actively trying to grow in their faith. And because of that active pursuit of growing in faith, pursuing sobriety, God brought forth, he realized, through the pulling out and the pushing forward, there had been hidden sin and addiction to pornography in the life of one of the spouses. And all of a sudden, this roommate, shadow of a relationship began to make sense. Right after that, obviously, a ton of pain comes. A lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt, a lot of difficulty. And here's, here's what happens in moments like that. That's where you really begin to see people, hey, how am I gonna go to my vows Till death do us part, for richer, for poorer. Or hey, will I turn? And in hurt and pain, which is understandable, will I leave? 
The relationship was a little rocky where there was even a point where they were talking about that divorce word, what would that look like? I don't think there was ever serious consideration of it, but it was a talk. And I can remember thinking, this marriage is really hurting. You know what that couple did? Both of them, both of them, because of the grace of God in their life, they chose spiritual sobriety. They did not want to be asleep, but they wanted to be awake. Right, and because of that, here's what they had been doing. They continued into a Christ, uh, a 12-step Christ-centered biblical discipleship program, both for their marriage as well as the individual. They stopped and they realized, Jesus Christ died for me when I did far worse. Therefore, I can give grace. The husband of the home chose to step up and grow in, even though it's such a pull out of personality to be more of a spiritual leader. Do they have tremendous room to go? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But that was a couple that chose, because of the love of Jesus Christ, to be sober. To not just let life go by and to almost walk through it with this mindset and this daze, but to say, no, this marriage, because of Jesus Christ, it's going to be different. Church, what if we grew in sobriety? What if not just marriages, but parenting, but service, but community groups, but everything? We said, no, no, no. He's coming, and he loves me. He's called me to be sober. He's called me to get after. He's called me to be faithful. He's called me to fight for what matters most, church. Those are the type of couples that I love hanging out with. Such a reminder to me. Paul is saying, church, you got to live ready. He knows this life is hard. He knows there's difficulties. He knows there's serious pain. But you have to live ready. And what does that look like? Be sober. Let's keep going. Pick up with me right there again in verse 8, and we're going to read through 11. Verse 8 through 11. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The third way that the Apostle Paul, he calls us to live ready that he calls us to, in response to the second coming of Jesus Christ, to know, to know, we've got to get after it today, is by being encouraged. It is to be encouraged. What is the thrust, what is the momentum of the text building towards is that final phrase, be encouraged and be built up. And how does he do that? He starts with first the final contrast. Salvation, Versus judgment. Salvation, where he talks about everything a Christian has to do. They put on the helmet of faith, the breastplate of righteousness. He's using military terms. The day I chose to simply, by grace, through faith, believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior was the day when I first began to receive this same encouragement. The reality of I was his and I didn't have to work for it. He called me mine. You see this even in the rest of the language there. 
there's that phrase, whether we are asleep or awake. And y'all hear this, especially if you think God is all judgment, no grace, because he is perfectly and united in both, and you cannot have one without the other. You gotta hear this next part. That phrase, whether we are awake or asleep, we as a reader right here, because Paul's gone back and forth using sleep and awake to reference both death and life, as well as spiritual attentiveness and spiritual apathy. Either one of these is true through this text, but here's what I'm, I think he's teaching right here. I think he's teaching spiritual attentiveness versus apathy. Why, why do I think that? He's using the same words as he did in verse six, the same tense. He's reminding the reader to go back to verse six where he's talking about spiritual attentiveness versus apathy. He's writing to a church that says, I've saved you, I've called you, I've loved you. And even if you go through life asleep, spiritually indifferent to the greatest gift you've ever received, I've still saved you, loved you, and called you. You are mine. Grace is the greatest gift you've ever been given. It's being loved without any expectation of something in return, and Jesus Christ does it. You won't be able to find relationships like that in this life. You find ones that try to reflect it, that try to mirror it, but they are at best a mere shadow of it. And he's including this reference to say, I'll come for you even if you don't really care. Why? Because I died for you knowing There'd be times you wouldn't really care. What does that drive in the heart of the Christian? Be encouraged, church, you are well-loved. Be encouraged, church, that God has paid for you. It's secure. And what does that do? It builds us up, edifies us. Part of his second coming as we strive to be encouraged is the reminder of he's coming And he wants me to look more like him and less like me. And as I do that, there's more joy, peace, laughter, fun, happiness. It's an abundant life. I got to see this, kind of lived out my wife this past week. My wife, so we went out to East Texas, hanging out with my in-laws out there. And while we were there, all these Black Friday sales come on. And then a whole bunch of stuff basically goes on sale between now and Christmas. My wife, we're out there, we're hanging out, and she sits down. We have a daughter. She's, I don't know, coming up on two, but not quite. Awkward year and a half to two-year mark, whatever month that is, right? So we're coming up, and my wife, she's seen all these sales, and she sat down. I'm not kidding you. Eight hours? Eight hours, where she sat down and through Amazon created, y'all know you can create like almost gift lists or whatever? Y'all know what I'm talking about? I'm sure some people already have these. She created over the course of eight hours a gift list for our daughter, Lily. Where one, because she knew folks would ask her, her parents or grandparents, and she wanted to come and get age-appropriate toys, all that kind of stuff. But you know why she did that? You know why? She loves our daughter. And she found real joy thinking through, how do I get her good things? How do I give her good gifts? If my broken imperfect, wonderful, but still sinful wife does that for our child. How much more does a perfect, loving, heavenly father want to do that for us? 
Church, be encouraged. He really does love you. He knows your name. He sincerely cares about you. You are not his disappointment. He wants you to be encouraged knowing he's coming for you in a way that will take away all the pain, all the stress, all the suffering, all the difficulty, all the tears. One day he'll come and he'll put an end to it. And he loves you and me so much, even if we don't really even care, even if we don't allow that to help us live ready today, he'll still do it. My daughter, Lily, what is the value she brings? Yeah, she's cute, she's funny, she says words with a weird tone of voice, but really she throws a ton of fits. She refuses to eat any form of healthy food, right? If she doesn't get what she wants, immediately cries, and she poops all the time. Not adding a ton of value to my wife's life. And my wife is crazy about her. God in heaven is crazy about you. And he proved it with his son, and he'll prove it again in his coming. What does it look like as we think through this text to live ready? Knowing we, we won't have it all together, but knowing Christ is coming back one day, and because of that, we want to live different today. We want to live ready. We have to be aware. Church, he's coming. He's coming. Second thing we have to do is we've got to be sober. I pray that his coming doesn't provoke in you this fear, but it does evoke, it does wake up within you a sense of, I'm going to be sober. I'm going to take my faith seriously. I'm going to get to know a God who would so pursue me, so love me, so die for me. I want to excel more and more sobriety. And the third, he prays it helps you and me be encouraged, whether awake or asleep. There's a guy that I've always looked up to. His name's John Wesley. Many of you heard of his name before. There's a story that I've never forgotten. I heard it years ago. There's a story where a lady came and they asked him a question. I'm just going to read this to you. A lady once asked John Wesley that suppose he were to know that he would die at noon tomorrow. How would he spend the intervening time? So you had about 24 hours here. His reply, why, madam, just as I intend to spend it now. She asked him, if you had 24 hours to live, how would you change your life? And he said, I'd do the same thing I got plans to do now. I would go preach this evening at Manchester and again at five tomorrow morning. And after that, I would ride to London, preach in the afternoon and meet the societies in the evening. Then I would go to Reverend, Martin house, Reverend Martin's house who expects to entertain me, talk and pray with the family as usual, retire to my room at 10 o'clock, commend myself to my heavenly father, lie down to rest and wake up in glory. That brother lived ready. He lived ready. Church, that wouldn't be how I would answer that. Right, If I were to sit there and do what I'm going to ask us all to do, to take 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, and just simply say, man, if, if it's almost noon today, if I had till noon tomorrow, what would I do different? How would that change the way I live? Not because I fear the God I'll meet in glory, because the God in glory has faithfully loved me here and will bring me home there. What would I do different there's some people in my life, I call them and I tell them about Jesus. I tell them, he loves you and he's died for you. There's some ways that I would try to go and spend more intentional time with my daughter. There's ways that I would come 
and specifically care for people in this body in a different way and say, hey, I gotta go, but man, get after it. But also, church, also, with full humility, and this is where you gotta be careful doing this from a stage, there's a lot of me to where with sincerity, I would say, thank you, God. Thank you. Because in my life, there has been a heart to live ready. Imperfectly, man, I, I, I screw it up consistently with the holidays. I ask forgiveness multiple times from my wife. I still fall short, but man, church, we wanna live ready. So here's what I wanna ask y'all to do. Over the next two days, think if I had 24 hours, what would I do different? What would I do different? Write it down. I don't think it'll take you more than 10 minutes. You can bullet list it. And then here's what I'm asking. One of those action items, just pick one and go do that. Just pick one. Live ready. Because man, it really does matter. Because even fighting for how you do that, it is the fight of faithfulness in your life. Last week, I had the, the joy and the true, the right use of the word privilege. I came and I taught here on Sunday. Following Sunday, I went and I met with a couple, right, and got to see God change them in their hearts, do huge stuff in a miraculous moment. Church, God is doing some amazing things in and through this body. And I just get to watch life change after life change after life change after life change. That's my morning, this glorious worship of God, teaching about him from his word, calling people to faithfulness. I go home that afternoon. I go there. My wife, she'd already gone early to Thanksgiving out in East Texas. I go there and I go home. I took a nap. It was wonderful. I woke up from that nap. I'm sitting there on a couch in our living room, turn on the TV, go to find Netflix. You know what immediately I wanted to do? I wanted to find and watch a bunch of stuff that I had no business watching. Steal images from people who had been made in the image and the dignity of God. Dishonor my bride, break distrust with this body and fulfill a fleshly desire. I didn't want to live ready. Didn't want to. And I'm not kidding. I remember sitting there and I felt the pull. You know that moment when temptation comes? Where it doesn't have to be lust for you. It can be your anxiety takes over. It can be that continual depression of thought, of self-hate, it can be, I gotta get them to like me. If I don't find this, then I won't have it. It can be anything, but you feel that pull. And man, I felt that pull. And I felt desire to not be God's man. And here's what's true. He loved me no matter what, how that situation came about. Christ died for it no matter what, however that situation came about. But for the grace of God, there was a text message to my community group saying, hey guys, Here's where I'm at. I need some prayer. And then by the grace of God, and I didn't want to do it, but with a heart to live ready, I have the self-awareness to know I just have to leave the house. Yeah, the guy who came, who taught, who pled for the marriage, who saw the impact of sexual sin time and time again, who knows it in his own life, could write the book on it, didn't want to live ready. Church, He's called us to more because he gave us his most. He calls us to live ready knowing he's coming back for us. For those who don't believe, he wants you to believe. And then that reality changes today. His Holy Spirit inside of that moment drives to the reality of this will kill me. 
and you send a text to friends, you get up, you walk out, and the rest of the week is fine. We must live ready. He loves you, and he loves me. Let me pray that we would do that. Father, I thank you that in my life, you did keep me from that. I pray, God, those who are standing, take heed. May I take heed, lest I fall. But may I run the race marked out. May we run the race marked out with courage, clinging to your word, not turning the right, not turning the left, but as your people. God, the day of the Lord is coming. You will come again. May it change the way we live May it encourage us, may it bring about a moral reformation to where not because we're supposed to, but because we love you and we want to, we look more like you. Would you start first with me? Would you do it in our body? Would you do it with those who believe in you? And those who don't, God, would you just knock on their heart and say, I'm pleading, I'm wooing, I am calling. And as your spirit says, come. I thank you for this time. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, y'all, if you have questions about anything, I'd love to connect with you. Feel free to always come down front. If you're wrestling with a relationship with Christ and thinking through, hey, how does it mean that God would still love you even if you had given into sin, even though by God's grace you didn't? He would still love me the same. If you don't know that kind of love, don't leave here without talking to somebody about it. But man, as you do, y'all go. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week.